Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we're discussing the Optus data breach from all angles with Guardian Australia's Josh Taylor, Kat Gledhill-Tucker from Electronic Frontiers Australia and Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea. So hi, everyone. Welcome to Burning Platforms on a very big week in um, the world of tech and politics. Feels a bit like the Queen's passing of um, digital rights this week. So we're going to really focus this week on the Optus leak, the breach, whatever we want to call it. We're going to junk our normal format of three pithy news pieces and a deep dive and just go at this from all angles. We've got regular panellist Lizzie O'Shea from Digital Rights Watch here. G'day, Lizzie. Um, We've got Josh Taylor from Guardian Australia, who's subbing in for Dan today. Um, He's been on the front line of the Optus breach all week and um, it's come straight from a press conference, I believe, today. So we'll be talking to Josh in a sec. G'day, mate. Yeah, been a busy week. <laughs> yes. Our special guest this week, Kat Gledhill-Tucker, who's an executive member of the Electronic Frontiers Australia Board. G'day, Kat, and thanks for being part of today. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. Great. So let's start, before we dig in, like, I'm really interested in everyone's hot take. Like, we talk about privacy, we talk about data austerity around here all the time, but what's been the one takeout from each of you on this week before we dig in too deeply. Lizzie, I'll get you to kick off. Well, I feel like it's a disappointing week in the sense that I don't find this surprising. I am shocked by this data breach, but it is something that I think a lot of people in this space, you know, cats on the call, EFA as well as DRW, as well as lots of different advocacy organisations in this space have expected something like this to happen for, for a while. So my hot take is too often when we talk about cybersecurity or digital security, we always talk about national security or the powers of national security agencies. And I think what this hack shows is that the interests of national security agencies do come into conflict with the interests of citizens in having digital security. And this is the moment, I think, to start talking about what that means and how we can prioritise citizens' rights over the interests of national security agencies. Terrific. What about you, Kat? What's been your sort of hot take on the, the week's news? Yeah, I plus 100 to Lizzie. I think the the very unfortunate framing of this data breach has been around, you know, this was human error, which is such a huge cop out because this is a systemic problem. We need some legislative counterbalance to surveillance capitalism. It's essentially currently we have this legislative and commercial framework that incentivizes data collection and storage and encourages hypervigilance and overcompliance with data retention laws without any sort of counterbalance that protects the privacy of individuals. So that's that's my that's been on my brain all week. Hot take from you, Josh. Um, yeah, I pretty much agree with both of those comments, unsurprisingly. I think that my take is that the angle about the fact that it was human error has been talked up a lot, but I think that it is probably important to note that like that is if that's all it took, that we just really need to be reassessing, you know, why why they need to retain this data, why they need to retain it for so long. And um, I, I guess just, just you know, it, this is the wake-up call everyone's been waiting for. I think that, you know, it's, it's tempting for people like myself and, and, and you, everyone else to, who's been reporting on this space or, or um, advocating this space to say, I told you so now. But the real thing that, that for me that as well was, the new Labor government obviously talking up all these changes they wanted to make, but they've waved through almost a decade of national security laws now, and maybe this will give them pause for saying maybe we shouldn't be rushing those through in the future now because, you know, we, these are the, this is the implications of it. I guess for me, I just think the takeout is everyone's got this sense that data is clinical and really smart and something that we're on on top of it it reinforces it's really really messy i remember a piece we did about amazon and the data security inside amazon and there's just all this data being held on individual excel spreadsheets all over the organization in the name of innovation the idea that all these IDs and 100-point IDs are just sitting there and they're just hanging around. It just seems to me it's messy and 
if things are really messy, you need frameworks for keeping them neat, particularly when it's stuff that's so important to us. And I guess, you know, I'm in the world of communications and, you know, you never waste a good crisis as it just seems like a really important moment to where 10 million people have lived the experience of messy data just to restart the conversation. So I do feel like while it's been this, obviously if you're one of those people that have had an Optus account, it's been a very stressful and, you know, concerning time. I think it just, gives us a chance to reload and start a number of really difficult debates that have been seen at being too difficult to, to start to start from scratch almost in first principles. Hopefully we can sort of do a bit of that discussion today as well. Maybe we need um, some digital decluttering, shall, to extend that metaphor. And there's a lot of good metaphors flying around at the minute. The other one I love is I shamelessly nicked from Kat because I saw her say this, that we need to end the age of digital gluttony <laughs> or data gluttony. Sorry. I thought you were going to go to the condition of which I wrote my piece this week, which, um, you know, I was having this other cleanse because I had a procedure on Wednesday while being asked to write a piece about the Optus takedown. So it all got cleared out pretty quickly. I'm not going to even stay there though. <laughs> Josh, you you've you've been doing some amazing coverage this week, but what's happened today? Uh, so today, the Australian Federal Police announced uh, the very kindly termed Operation Guardian, which basically means that for those ten thousand people who were in the records that were dropped online on Monday the state and federal police authorities will be sort of stepping up protection of them. And, and I guess that probably consists of, although they didn't really go into too much detail, I think it's going to be going through the complete drop and pulling out all those names and seeing what was taken and telling those people what was taken. And then I guess just alerting the the financial institutions and, and um, passports offices and everything to sort of just be wary of, of anyone trying to apply for anything in, in these people's names. The other thing that happened, um, uh, the Prime Minister just announced it in National Cabinet about an hour ago that um, Optus has now agreed to pay for passport replacement. So that's good. It's interesting that that had to come from the PM and not from Optus itself. So it's just sort of the continuing run of Optus being really bad at communication on this. So if you're wrapping the last week and a bit into a single story what what's the story say at the moment what what's your lead what's your angle if you're wrapping this into one um well i think one of my colleagues is working on a sort of a weekend piece sort of explaining it to the rest of the world and it's i think it's something along the lines of around 40 percent of the population had their personal information exposed in a breach that was entirely of optus's making and holding data that the government required them to for much longer than was reasonably necessary. I think that's basically the the sum of it. And do we know yet if this was a highly tuned hostile attack? Sophisticated or attack. Or Keystone Cops? I mean, the AFP still is refusing to say anything about that. But the way that the Assistant Commissioner, Justine Goff, was talking this morning lends itself to me thinking that it's much, it's basically what's already been reported, that it wasn't a very sophisticated attack. It was an open API that allowed them to extract the data because, well, a couple of things. I mean, the fact that they've got Operation Guardian in the first place indicates that we can probably just assume now that that those 10,000 records did come from the bulk 9.8 million that Optus say have been exposed. The other thing is that she said the alleged uh, attacker, I think she called it the alleged offender, that was her phrasing, used obfuscation methods to hide their identity. So that basically means that when they were running on the forum, they were um, uh, hiding themselves. I think that's probably, that it lends credibility to the, the the person who posted on the forum is the person who obtained the data. And based on their, I guess, the, the weird actions this week in terms of posting the 10,000 and then suddenly backing off and deleting all the posts and stuff like that, indicates that this is not really someone who's all that sophisticated. So is people's data safe again now or we don't? Have- <laughs> no, no. If you're not in that 10,000 drop, which, you know, unless you actually have access to the file or know someone who has access to the file, people don't know if they're in there or not, which is a major problem, I think. You you can probably rest a little bit easier if, you, if you're not within that 10,000, but still, you know, we, we're basically going on the word of some guy or some person who posted on a forum saying that they had deleted the data that they had obtained from Optus and we, we you know we have no way, reason to verify a they were the person who obtained it in the first place and not just someone who was passed along to b 
that they deleted their only copy of the data and see they didn't try and pass it on to anyone else so yeah i'd like although although you know you might be tempted to be a bit more relieved i wouldn't be sort of ruling anything out at the moment i don't know if we've got any optus users in the chat but i'd be really interested in anyone's experiences and and feelings i suspect you're a you're a telstra girl lizzie but maybe i've picked you wrong no, you're right there. I, I fortunately am. In my professional life at Maurice Blackburn as a class actions lawyer, I also had carriage when I wasn't on parental leave of a complaint to the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner about Optus from 29, oh, 2019, I think now. So I have been a bit sceptical about some of their their information management practices for a while because I did see firsthand that kind of problem. So, And also the consequences. You know, A lot of people obviously are now at risk of potential identity theft but a lot of people also might have professions where they don't want their identifying information revealed and you know a big part of this as well is a lot of people who use telephone services might be victims of domestic violence and be looking to conceal identifying information about themselves for very good reasons and these people are just left to to deal with this themselves and it's just, the, I think the takeaway from, for me from all the excellent reporting from The Guardian and others this week is Optus has obviously got a terrible public relations team, that's the first point, but also like the costs associated with a breach like this are so wide ranging. It's not just the passport office. It's not just various transport officers who have to issue new licences or whatever. It's also like banks or lenders um, who might now need different kind of identifying information or more, more stringent requirements to loan money because, you know, they can't be necessarily convinced that just usual 100 points of ID is valid. Obviously, the diversity of, of harm experienced by victims, much of which will not be accommodated or dealt with at a meta level. So, you know, the the goal of Optus to, to blame the person who did the hack and then, you know, the government sort of now making noises about the need to reform the space, um, some of it feels a bit like these things we always knew would happen. But I, I must admit thinking through the consequences of the harm is a bit more revealing to me. It's just it's just such a devastating, wide-ranging experience and it's got huge economic impacts as well as obviously, you know, more rights-based impacts. Kat, we haven't introduced you properly, so, so welcome as a first-time platform burner. Electronic Frontiers is one of the stalwarts of the digital rights movement, so it's great to have you along. What, what perspective do you bring to the Optus Breach? Sure. I Yes, thank you for having me and thank you for uh, bringing along Electronic Frontiers Australia. So I, I suppose like at the top to introduce our organisation a little bit more, we are a member-based not-for-profit organisation established in 1994 uh, and we work to ensure that technology makes our lives better and not worse. So we promote the idea that digital rights are human rights and we're fairly active in making policy submissions, engaging with community outreach and education and all of that. So um, I, I think the biggest thing that we bring as an organization to this conversation is that many, many years and decades of policy submissions that we've been making it to the effect of we need a federally uh, enshrined right to privacy. Uh, we need um, to lift the Privacy Act and we need privacy reforms in this, in this country that allow a individual right to privacy. So there's a, this is, I think we all mentioned at the, at the top of this discussion, this is a very systemic outcome. Um, this is not just a, a failure of one company because data breaches happen as well. Like it's not a case of if a data breach happens, but when for a lot of companies and not just tech companies, but anyone who does handle data, I think you need to operate under the assumption that there will be a data breach. So how do you protect people effectively? Um, and how do you prevent the kind of like scope and blast radius of, of a breach like this? But we do live in a, under a legislative framework that has encouraged data collection and storage without protecting people's privacy uh, and without encouraging companies to treat data with respect. Mm. Josh, reporting on it, it, I'm interested in your perspective of how much this has been run as a cybersecurity story. So a story about something that's gone wrong, but it's the natural order of things, as opposed to the question of whether this should be the way that companies operate. Well, I can't speak for how others have reported on it, but from the Guardian's perspective, at least, we've kind of decided to 
split it to triage it a little bit in terms of uh, like I tend to focus on the the immediate side of the security impact and and um, all the I guess technical and legal aspects therein. Our Canberra team is focusing on the the, the politics of it and the policy outcomes that are going to come from that and what 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 they've been announcing this week. And we've also had people who are just talking to consumers and about the consumer impact as well. We think that those are all the sort of the three important branches of that. I was thinking about this. I, I have data breaches come across my inbox all the time in terms of being reported and stuff like that. It's been, been becoming where the threshold for actually reporting on it now is so high because there are just so many every single day that it's only it's only something now of the scale of Optus where it's be, literally been the only thing I've covered all week um, that makes it such a big news story. So like um, I, I, I'm I'm hoping that that because of the scale of this that that um, people do pay more attention to it than they might have in the past is this a global outlier is this is have, have we had breaches like this i mean equifax is the other one that comes to mind a few years ago so which is funny because now um, optus is offering equifax's um identity <laughs> protection that's probably the big the biggest one I, I can't think of any i mean there's been hacks and things like that like the the sony breach the obviously the, the uber one and the rockstar one a couple of weeks ago but I don't think I've seen breach of Not this Not to size. mention that dating site as well, I remember. That's Not true. Not that I yeah. was a subscriber. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, um, the other one that comes to mind for me actually is what happened in Singapore with the leak that resulted in, I think it was about one and a half million people's health records. And, you know, obviously that's quite sensitive information. So part of it is scale. Part of it is also the sensitivity of the material that's been leaked. I think it's really interesting that we've got Kat here, actually, because, you know, one of the things I associate with EFA is a founding time in which there was a lot of optimism about the internet, you know, about a kind of decentralised internet. And what we have seen in recent decades is a, you know, what Tim Berners-Lee describes as a re-centralised, you know, the internet began as a form of, of networking among computers. And in some ways, there's a greater protection when that network is more distributed because there's less honeypots that are full of data that might be an attraction for criminals. But as, you know, as we're required to, to put more data into centralised spots, you know, Optus being one, but also digital platforms being the other obvious example, you can see the, the potential harms that are created by that, not just for our, you know, the potential of the internet, but also for things like this, like leaks. I don't know if that's your view, Kat, but I, I sort of am on board with Tim Berners-Lee's idea of um, re-decentralised because he has this project called Solid where instead of giving your data to companies to verify your identity, what you do is you'd hold your data and update it as you went along and companies would come and ask for that. And that's a totally different way of thinking about how we could engage with commerce online and, you know, to restructure it. And maybe that's too big for this discussion, but I think there's some interesting ideas there in thinking about centralisation and decentralisation. I don't know if you've got a view about that, Kat, whether we can return to that optimism which characterized the time at which EFA was really founded. Yeah, I feel like that optimism has just eroded so much over the last few decades, but you're right. And I, I often come back to, you know, what does that Berners-Lee vision of the free and open web look like? And is that even compatible with the year of our Lord 2022? So I think what we're getting at is also this concept of like data sovereignty uh, and being able to reframe data and especially individual and personal data uh, around like, th this is mine and this is me and establishing protocols with uh, how that data is is shared and who has access to it. It is totally opposite to how the, the world works now and we're, would require an enormous systemic change. But I think you're right. Like I like to think that is how the internet should work. I should be able to say like, here's my identity, here's everything about me. And if a company would like access to anything of, of, about myself, then that needs to be that I, I need to be the one who owns the nature of that relationship and the nature of that, that data, that data sharing, but it's yeah, totally antithetical to surveillance capitalism. Indeed it is. And, you know, but it does feel like a moment when these conversations can be had again. Lizzie, you and I have been doing a bit of work behind the scenes trying to nut, nudge along the privacy reform agenda in Australia where people know we're, we're decades behind. Um, we're, 
Australians have fewer rights than people in California and people in Europe, a large number of other places in the world. And we've reached out to the new government and we'd had a bit of a sense it was coming, but it wasn't coming quickly. All of a sudden, it looks like there's going to be legislation before the end of the year. So one of the opportunities, I guess, also the risks of rapidly moving through the um, privacy reform process. Yeah, this is a really interesting time for that. It is, of course, extremely timely that the current current Privacy Act is under review. So that review was a recommendation of the ACCC when they did their digital platforms inquiry, looking at the power of digital platforms over our lives. And so the ACCC obviously has a focus on consumer rights, on market functionality, more than, say, human rights. Uh, and so, you know, me and Digital Rights Watch and many other organisations have tried to bring that focus to some of our advocacy around privacy reform. And, you know, some of the key things that we're looking at is updating things like the definition of personal information, also probably critically, the complaints process in relation to this breach. At present, you're only permitted to make a complaint as an individual to the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, notoriously underfunded uh, under the last administration. Um, So just not resource to properly um, regulate this space. And so the argument is, like lots of other parts of the world, what we should have is a direct right of action to court uh, to be able to seek damage for harm that suffered but also I think what we need is the imposition of penalties in this instance you know if you have a workplace right violated for example you're entitled to a penalty associated with that and that's because you know the harm may not be manifest immediately in a workplace right violation but you want to also create a disincentive for for breaching those rights this is a really good example currently in the privacy act there is a definition around harm that puts the bar quite low but really what we're seeing here is the harm is quite difficult um to articulate because it may not be clear, you know, we can have our suspicions or, or the work of proving that could be very difficult. And so there is a need, I think, to re-define um, what kinds of compensation are available to include things, you know, like when the Equifax breach happened, people got access to compensation for the time spent getting new documents, assistance um, with, you know, insurance and, and credit monitoring, this kind of stuff, which is very useful. So Yeah, I think it is a really critical time to be talking about this. There are downfalls, of course. I'll stop in a second. We can talk about that a bit more. But, you know, Sam further up in the chat from DRW was talking about giving police access to this information and and, and turning it into a police matter to assist victims of this hack. And I am a bit wary after 20 years of national security legislation that the answer will be more policing rather than, you know, what we were talking about before, greater rights for individuals to hold and protect their data and a data a focus on data minimisation, decluttering, you know, forcing companies to remove data when mm. they no longer need it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that yeah. a bit more now. Yeah, the discussions coming out in, in the call and response of a crisis with the AG has been interesting. Um the right to be forgotten, but also a requirement, not even like one of the problems with the right to be forgotten, as we've seen um, in Europe, is that it still puts all the responsibility back on the consumer slash citizen. This seems to be maybe even going further than that and sort of putting concrete requirements on companies just to to run data austerity as, as a default. Now, if we can get in this moment that sort of discussion going because it's really hard Josh you 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 know as a a tech reporter trying to get a privacy story over the line even at a publication like the guardian can be an absolute challenge so i'm interested in your thoughts on what the window is to keep the momentum going on these discussions i think we just need to wait and see what the fallout is from this in terms of like where do we see people's like data being abused and i think that if if there's more if the initial outrage dies down then it might kind of go away i think i think it's all and i did I, this was one of the first stories i did you know my first thing when all this happened i was like okay so what did opta say during the discussions about the changes to the privacy act and of course they argued against all the stuff that is on the table now because they said it was too cost uh, too high a cost for doing business so you know, it's it's not totally surprising. I I'm not sure if they still stand by that. I imagine that they probably still do, considering they would be facing much more uh, in the way of uh, I guess penalties and and personal action now than they they otherwise mm. would have. But yeah, it's, it's I'm I'm hopeful that this will sort of spur. I think you know at least we'll get we'll get the changes uh, announced by the government towards the end of the year. That'll go to a parliamentary committee where. Um, no doubt there will be people who um, make submissions about the impact that this had on their lives. And I think that that'll be really important to sort of just frame about um, that. Cause I, I was, I was on ABC Melbourne, I think on Monday or Tuesday and 
they were taking calls and there were people crying about having to like being worried about their data being exposed and, and um, having to go through this whole process. And, I, and, and it made me step back a bit because I'm like, I kind of report on this in the abstract all the time and I never actually sort of get to experience what, how, how it goes for every person who might be going through this because like I, you know I, it's something I think about all the time for myself as a reporter but people who may not have been aware that this information was out there and, and that it could potentially be leaked it's it's quite a traumatic thing for them to go through not to mention having to apply for new paperwork that's what really makes you cry but the other thing that I think might shift here is the current discussion paper looks at, as Lizzie said, definitions, it looks at consent, it looks at a course of action, which is quite a contested idea. I struggle to see a politician that's going to be standing between a course of action for breach of privacy and the public after this. And the other thing that is interesting is the exemptions and the idea of removing exemptions. So currently, media companies, political parties, small business, all have carved themselves out of privacy law. And again, I don't, I'm not sure how this plays out, but I again, I think it's going to be harder for any organisation that's holding a lot of personal information to be saying, compliance is too costly for us because now we've seen the cost of lax privacy so it's going to be interesting totally i mean isn't it like a fossil fuel company saying on oh, you know transitioning to a green economy is too costly for us like I, I just think this is an environmental thing where they can say it's too costly for us but or they did in these submissions because they haven't been required to structure their databases their data information management practices in a way that respect people's rights so yeah they've offloaded the cost onto everybody else now the consequences of, of that decision what i would say just quickly is that sam's in the chat talking about a few different things from digital rights watch one of the things we're doing is we're having a briefing on this we had started a letter writing campaign as of monday to ask the attorney general to urgently review the privacy act because we do know that it was happening but it was going to be something that was probably on the agenda next year it's obviously quite now now more urgent than ever and he's escalating that timetable to his credit um so that letter writing campaign is still going if you want to participate although it seems to be the the uh, most effective letter writing campaign on one region that we've seen but what I um I don't mean to be too glib about it the other thing we're going to do is get together to talk about a briefing to talk about what we think we can do in terms of advocacy and campaigning for improved privacy reform so this isn't just a knee-jerk response to the particular moment that it is about addressing long-standing issues that advocates have been talking about for years but also really trying to avoid this kind of um, misery that now many Australians are facing who have to contend with the potential of identity theft the potential of having to move to escape you know, a, a violent ex-partner, these kinds of things. We want to prevent this harm and that does require, I think, pretty significant reform. And we want to use this moment for that, not just a, a patch over of the problems that currently exist in privacy law. Yeah, Kat, what's Electronic Frontiers Australia cooking up around this space? Yeah, I think similarly, we're preparing for um, the Privacy Act reform. There's, I, I believe we're, yeah, review, a review, we're expecting a report uh, in the next few months so um, we're looking to see the the outcomes of that review um, I'll if I can touch on a couple of other things that we've mentioned in the last couple of minutes I'm really glad that we brought up private right of action electronic frontiers Australia advocates for the private right of action of individuals to be able to sue businesses for violations related to data privacy uh, or data breaches um, and uh, penalties and the enforcement of those penalties, like having a well-funded uh, regulator, the OAIC needs, uh, needs some better funding. I'm glad that you mentioned as well uh, exemptions, especially for small businesses and political uh, groups or political candidates. Um, one of the conversations that's come up during the week uh during this this Optus data breach week um has been okay what's what's next what about real estate organizations who do tend to be small businesses who carry a significant amount of very sensitive very private information what happens if if that's the next data breach that occurs what then uh mm. there is such a, an enormous like risk and harm that does get offloaded to individuals which is totally unfair josh the one that always freaks me out is the credit rating agencies and the trade in that around the net and you were speaking before about equifax which is in the credit mm. rating game how did that resolve itself and what was that just that the roadshow moved on and we stopped being concerned about it or can we can we can we learn anything about how that 
that breach played out so that we don't just let the caravan move past Optus. I mean, you're tapping back into sort of ancient history for me. I can't mm. really remember how that sort of resolved itself. I think, I don't think it really has. I mean, one of the things that came up when Optus announced that Equifax Protect would be the service that people provided was like, oh no, that brand is very much associated with the data breach itself. So, um, you know, at least maybe in the practical sense, it, like if a brand is forever tainted in that way, maybe hopefully that might be a negative of, of the cost of doing business with this sort of thing as well maybe like you know i was just i was thinking um when this all happened that you know it was only a few years ago that that vodafone's brand was in the in the trash can because of the, how bad their network was and, and everything like that and you know i can see for the next few years optus is, is just going to be completely stuffed now i can't see many people um being keen to become optus customers or stay as optus customers and and hopefully that that alone, regardless of all the regulatory thing we're going to see, hopefully that will, you know, shake other companies. I mean, you, you know, just talking to some people who work for some of the rival corporations this week, firstly, they have secondhand embarrassment for Optus. Um, they, they've seen how they've handled this from not just from the breach itself, but the communications point of view. But it will become like a they'll, they'll teach courses in, in university to PR people about this is not how you do crisis communications. And I think just the fact of how like aside from all the the policy reform we're going to see in this area just the way that it's being communicated to the public has been just so atrocious that i mean the, the fact that um you know i've got people messaging me all the, all the time if they're asking if they're affected asking how they're affected because the communications has been so bad and i think that that's obviously going to be a big part of it i think you know if we're, if we're going to talk about reform as well there probably needs to be some sort of standardized communication about the process of this for when companies do go public with this sort of stuff as well. Can I ask you, Pete, where do you, what's your money on? What do you think is going to be um, Dreyfus's response? Do you think it's going to be a knee-jerk one or do you think it is going to be a more substantial privacy reform that doesn't just focus on kind of law enforcement responses? I mean, because, you know, the coalition did put forward almost immediately um, some private members bill. I don't know whether that's just died on the vine about better better criminalization of these kinds of hacks which just struck me as a classic coalition move mm. you know every answer to the problem is more Top cops new on the law street. yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly even though it's already criminalized you know like and it, it and it appears to be something like a teenager who's asking for a million bucks from optus who then recanted immediately mm. so you know i do wonder what you think about that like because it does feel like that kind of bipartisan approach to law enforcement responses to cybersecurity issues is a hard one to shape culturally and i'm curious to know what your assessment is of yeah, the I, new government and i and i think again we we fall into the um the challenge of having a government where responsibility for tech issues is spread all over the place so Claire O'Neill very effectively has been delivering the cybersecurity message, I think, and you know that that whole idea of there are obligations. Um, Dreyfus's role is interesting. Um, does he just come up with a minimalist to say we have done something, or do they push forward the discussion paper process and just land the thing? Because it is glaringly obvious that Australia is decades behind and does mm. he take up that opportunity now and I kind of think it's partly up to us not just you and I but the the, the broader population who wants to see movement on this not to let the government just increase fines or you know and say mission accomplished moved on because you know a lot of the work has been done the the shape of what we think will come out in the privacy discussion paper isn't bad. Mm. And to land particularly, I think, you know, for your, you know, employers when you're when you're working to lock in a course of action, which would have been really hard if there is time for all the other vested interests to circle. There is a moment, and I, I think it's largely up to those of us that care about digital rights to make sure that it isn't wasted. Just on the law enforcement point that came up earlier, I wouldn't put it past the AFP and other state law oh, enforcement yeah. to use this to push <laughs> against VPNs. Like the fact that they're talking about how the person hid, hid their um, IP address was—it's it, entirely predictable. But you know, never, never look a gift horse in the mouth. I guess when it comes to law enforcement, <laughs> and that all comes down to framing the problem we're trying to solve. I do think that more than ever before, people are questioning, "Well, why is my driver's license and my like when the Medicare cards were being held?" It was like what and. You know, so I do think that the opportunity is there to shift the conversation, but you're right. If it just becomes, how do we stop bad guys taking 
advantage of all this data that is mm. being collected and we don't really ask that question then but the also don't you reckon business is not up for that like it, it is like I don't think that's it's such a paltry solution to the problem that has been exposed by this data breach you know the failure of policing of cyber or cyber hackers and sort of any major business knows that this is a risk I mean they they are all looking at Optus and assuming it can't happen to them I think a lot of them and they're now realizing actually this is a very it's like trying to make sure all the windows are closed in Buckingham Palace or whatever. It's such a massive sprawling entity, these companies, that you couldn't possibly mm-hmm. kind of avoid these things occurring. So it's just then, like you were saying, Kat, it depends on what the impact is of it when it occurs. So I feel like sensible arms of business won't even want that that to be the total solution because they don't, it doesn't sound like they also want to be holding mm. all this information. They wanted, you know, some of them at least seem to want an approach of data minimization so that they can minimize the impact of these things when they occur. But isn't this the elephant in the room that organizations have been convinced by vendors that the more data you collect, you know, data is oil analogy, that the more you collect, you're going to get some value out of it one day. So get as much as you can. So that's vendor driven. Then you've got the cybersecurity industry, which charges gazillions to keep those big pools of data because they're oil and they're really valuable, secure. And so there are a whole bunch of vested interests in maintaining a system of data what's the opposite of austerity data maximization so in a way data gluttony da- thank right. you so <laughs> what's the but where's the business model in austerity well it's just like maybe it's not oil maybe it's uranium like you we've talked about these endless metaphors for data but you know like that actually it's sure it's valuable in some respects but it's hugely toxic maybe you should just leave it in the ground you know yeah, I don't know. What do you, who, what do you who think? Makes a buck, what do you think, Kat? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was I was gonna say, I mean, these are all commercial decisions that companies are going to be making. Legislation is only effective if it is realized in in some kind of commercial impact. So I think companies are going to be looking at this breach and looking at Optus and quantifying the reputational damage that they're suffering and the you know financial impact of if they are going to pay for a bunch of passports and cleaning up after this mess. Um, and potential uh, Privacy Act reform that might look like something. I hope that we do get something like the GDPR, where if we were in the EU and Optus were compliant with GDPR, they would say, what is it? Something like- up 10%. To, uh, yeah, well, 20, 20 million euros or up to 4% of annual global turnover, whichever is greater, which is a, a real- financial impact so I think what companies are doing are looking at okay what's the the risk of something going wrong what's the cost is it worth investing in data minimization practices in infosec and cybersecurity at the moment in Australia some companies might be looking at those costs and those impacts and be like "Eh, it's worth more for me to hold and store data so I think that's where we need to see these kind of counterbalances some of its legislation some of it's just general business practices and how we handle and treat data. Um, but I think at the moment, some companies might be looking at this and being like, you know what, the the cost isn't actually that high. I'm not going to change how, how we work. Yeah, Damien in the chat saying one of his clients this week has begun the conversation. Hey, why are we keeping this? Can we store data or a signature or delete it? Um, good conversations, good areas. Before we spend the whole hour talking about Optus, the other development I did want to mark this week was our good friend Ed Santo, the former human rights commissioner who's now working out of UTS with um, another good friend Nick Davis have put out their model law on facial recognition technology. It kind of got lost in the Optus but it also the Optus gave it a bit of momentum so they were everywhere as well so um, you know good on them. What's interesting with what they're proposing is rather than blanket principles it's a harms based almost spectrum of regulation where you know for low impact there's one set of rules which is kind of light you know for instance opening your phone with facial recognition technology to where it's high impact where it's where it's collecting information which might infer behavior without your consent it's totally banned and the other bit that's really interesting in their proposal is the proposition that when AIs are being developed there would be an independent body that's going under the bonnet to have a look at how it's working to make those determinations on where on the spectrum 
it might sit. So from what I can see, that is a bit of world leading legislation on an area where industries are being built over the collection of biometric personal information. But I'm just interested if you've had a look at it, Kat, and I know Lizzie, you'll have views on it too, but at least in the, you know, with the sort of in we of privacy being too hard, this is an issue where there has been public concern um, sparked particularly from the choice investigation in the way that, you know, Bunnings and other supermarkets had just started filming everyone because they could, and a really smart set of regulatory responses. Yeah, so I'm glad that we've got, you know, 14 short minutes to talk about facial recognition technology and biometric surveillance. Um, I have had a little look at the uh, the model law. Uh, you touched on uh, this a little bit. It's important to, I suppose, distinguish and differentiate between the different types of facial recognition technology because it's easy to conflate yeah, opening opening my phone with my face with what um, Bunnings and Kmart and Good Guys have been in the news about uh, by that choice report. So uh, there's one-to-one -one matching or facial verification. That's me unlocking my phone and saying to my phone, I am, I am the person that my phone is expecting. And then there's facial analysis where technology is used to analyze facial characteristics, which is somewhat unscientific, I would say. Uh, and then there's one-to-end identification or one-to-many. And this is where software compares a face print of an unknown person with a large database of known faces to determine the identity of that known person. And so this is the, uh, the highest risk, greatest chance of harm kind of technology. And essentially in most cases is mass surveillance. So whether it's a shopping center or a public park, this is mass surveillance designed to empower law enforcement. I think um, I've got a pretty extreme position on facial recognition technology and biometric surveillance. I think there should be a total moratorium on the development, deployment and access of facial or biometric surveillance when we're talking about one-to-end or one-to-many identification. I don't think it has any place in our society. I think the no amount of safeguards are sufficient to counteract the harms of this kind of technology places on individuals, especially when we think about the inherent bias in artificial intelligence against people of color and its ability to accurately identify people in an environment in Australia where people of color and indigenous peoples are already overrepresented in our prisons and overpoliced. That's a very comprehensive overview in a few short minutes there, Kat. Where are you sitting on the model law, Lizzie? Yeah, like I I, um, I have a lot of empathy with Kat's position. Like I, I sort of understand the um, process adopted by Ed in this and others in this report in terms of a, quite a structured process for regulating it, thinking about the risk and thinking then about what you impose on people depending on that risk. But I, I do think there is some um, problems with the technology per se in the way that Kat was describing, you know, there's a really good book on this by Kate Crawford. Um, it's called Atlas of AI. And she talks about facial recognition technology. Like she talks about how, for example, models are trained to identify emotions using facial recognition technology and how the material underpinnings of those models are often really problematic. Like it's certain selection of faces, which creates particular bias. And then there's certain assumptions about that are culturally specific about what kind of emotion registers what um, in a face. Whereas in fact, these things are inherently individual and um, contextually specific. And it does, you know, her, her book is this deep dive into how it's almost impossible to justify using this technology because it's just invariably going to fail. And I think that is an interesting perspective and one that is often glossed over because we just see these products that promise to do all these things in really science fiction-y kinds of ways but cannot. And so I, I do wonder whether we are at a point whether we need to be a bit more ambitious about uh, placing moratoriums in certain types of uses um, like one one to one is kind of different, say to one to many, of course, but then also emotional recognition is a whole other thing altogether. And you know, maybe we do have to think about whether there is a place for it at all. Like what who who is using this, even in low risk settings? The, the incentive that that then creates if it's permitted to be used um, means that there'll be a market for this kind of product and that there'll be investment in this in this industry. And I, I do wonder about whether that's something we want to encourage given the particular nature of this kind of tech. 
I'll give you an interesting insight. I did a bit of the research um, for Ed and Nick around public perception of facial recognition. And it was a really, we, we, we ran some focus groups where we got people to plug into the biometric mirror, which is this simulation some academics have, have set up where you take a photo of your face and it reads it and it gives you different ratings on whether you're I got 50% boring, which I was really, really pushed. I, I was not happy about that, but whether you're aggressive and whether you're attractive and it predicts your age and it's like that. I, and it, it was based on a little bit of science. Okay. But what was really interesting was when people went through it, it was like, they weren't outraged that their emotions were, were being read. They really wanted to win the AI. They wanted to win the facial recognition technology so they didn't look aggressive, so they wouldn't be let into the nightclub. And it was just a really interesting insight that we think people aren't as questioning of the way technology develops as we might like to think they are. And, you know, we talk about digital literacy a lot, but I a bit tangentially samantha wrote a beautiful piece about privacy on a website which we should put in the chat as well this week um on kill your darlings but that idea of what are the bits of ourselves that shouldn't be looked at and using that as a base the bits of ourselves that can be wiped and aren't held forever and the bits that aren't observed are as important as the things that we put out there and it just struck me that people have lost the language of what they are in in a world where they're surrounded by the extraction of data. And um, I was just, I, I, I just found it quite confronting when I got the feedback in those groups that people weren't horrified by it. They just wanted to have the algorithm let them into the nightclub, so. What does it then say if you want to aspire to, to, to have the machine tell you something, then you kind of lose your sense of self. You become wanting to define yourself in accordance what the, with what the machine considers valuable. And then behind that, what, what is considered valuable has been determined by someone else. And to my mind, yeah, I mean, it's like somebody else is getting to write the history of your sense of self. And but only because you want to get through because you've accepted the rules in the first place, I think. Well, that's right. But yeah. it's, it's, it's an instinct that maybe we should be avoiding rather than encouraging is my point. I don't blame people for wanting for that feeling. It's more that I, I think, you know, if we're trying to create a world of, of genuine autonomy, perhaps that's not an instinct we should be encouraging. Anyway, no. sorry, Josh, mm. Josh. Yeah, what do you reckon, Josh? I know you've been too busy with Optus to be looking at the Santo report this week. But... Well, I mean, that particular example, I mean, I, I don't see it too much. I mean, it's it's in terms of sucking up people's faces, it's bad, but it's I don't see it too much different from people doing like a quiz, a personality quiz and saying, you know, that's what they, that's what type of person they are. It's not really a, a true reflection of the person. It might just say some interesting things about them and it'll give, it might give them a bit of a sense of community, but I don't think you can really read too much into it. I've talked to Ed before on these these issues, and I mean, I haven't actually looked at the legislation this week because Optus has taken up all my time, but I think generally that approach is right. I think it, it comes back to what we were saying before in terms of how we see the, the response to Optus going. Um, when facial recognition tends to come up, it tends to be a solution to something without the privacy aspects being thought of in advance. And I think that the, the struggle that they'll, they will encounter in trying to um, force its kind of legislation is that it will probably just be thought of in 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 terms of those things. I think I think um, I was thinking this week. So one of one of my colleagues was saying, "Oh, I you know I I went into the Optus app and I had to use my face ID to get in. Does does do the hackers have my face ID?" And I, and I explained, "No, you use Apple. Your your facial ID is retained on your phone." And I think if one of the things that can come out of this is maybe that we do do that decentralization where you know your personal information is kept on your phone or on your device and you you keep control of it completely that would be a much better place to end up i think mm. yeah just to that point i do think the interesting part of um the project that um ed's running on facial recognition is it was endorsed by the tech council um it's got large buy-in from big corporates because they can see the risk coming if they don't get their frameworks around AI right from the start. So in terms of setting, setting the foundations for development of tech to unlock the benefits, at least this project is trying to anchor something at the beginning of that so that you're not playing whack-a-mole or catch-up down the track. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the lack of regulation is creating its own problems in that it, it is occurring in a lawless space. And, you know, we've seen examples of New South Wales police using what I understand to be a test of real-time facial recognition of crowds. So, like, I, I don't want that to happen. But I, I do also think it's fair to say, well, maybe this is something we should prohibit uh, in certain settings entirely rather than assuming that it's an inevitability, I suppose. There's, you know, that's, that's not an uncommon experience in the US. You know, the Illinois law has whole-scale banning of um, sale of biometric information, for example, and large parts of the US prohibit certain kinds of facial recognition. So it's not unprecedented to ban it entirely. And I, I think before we assume that is off the table, it's worth thinking about why that is the case. And, you know, a lot of this is motivated by law enforcement use of it, of course, and hugely problematic, but part of it is also the private sector creating those products for law enforcement and avoiding that kind of market being created, yeah. Any final thoughts, Kat? Yeah, I think the the benefits are pretty, I, I don't know, it, it's such a, a nebulous concept. I I think that mass surveillance is incompatible with a liberal democracy and there's no amount of commercial benefit that can, that can change that. Yeah. The final point I'll make is that um, I was reflecting this week, if you look at the journey from the surveillance model that was prompted by the 9-11 attacks through to, you know, state surveillance to protect us from terrorism and where that model of data extraction has ended up with filter bubbles and disinformation undermining democracy. It feels like the um, the cure might have been as bad as the disease that we thought we were trying to, to solve in the first place. But um, on that happy note, we might wind it up. <laughs> thanks for being part of it today, Kat. And Josh, thanks for your work as always. Love reading your stuff. And um, I'm sure you've got another couple of features to file for the weekend. So thanks for making time for us today. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live at a virtual town hall on September 30. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.